you are listening to ai ready healthcare i am anirban mukhopadhyay your host from tiu darmstadt germany the purpose of ai ready healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians industry personnel regulatory personnel to name a few you can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing ai into the real clinical routine opinion belongs to whoever said it anything said here is not medical advice together let's make healthcare ai ready and the trees about me let them be dry and leafless let the rocks groan with continual surges and behind me make all a desolation look look wenches paint me a cavernous waste shore cast in the unstilled cyclades paint me the bold and fractious rocks faced by the snarled and yelping seas display me olas above reviewing the insurgent gales which tangle ariadne's hair and swell with haste the perjured sails morning stirs the feet and hands now seeker and polyphene gesture of orangutan rises from the sheets in steam this withered root of knots of hair slitted below and gashed with eyes this ovalo cropped out with the teeth the sickle motion from the thighs jack knives upward at the knees then straightens out from heel to hip pushing the framework of the bed and clawing at the pillow slip you were listening to a few selected verses of sweeney rett by ts eliot in today's episode of already healthcare i asked Lorenzo Rieto what really needs to happen to translate the research published currently in Mikai to a top tier journal like Nature or Nature Communication Lorenzo is perfectly placed as the editor of Digital Health in Nature Communication to answer these questions and also the potential impact that publishing in such an illustrious name brings to your work Welcome to the fourth season of AI Ready Healthcare. This is a cold and rather somber January afternoon in Darmstadt, Germany. I'm your host, Anirban. It is my pleasure to warmly welcome our guest for today, Dr. Lorenzo Rieto. Lorenzo is an editor of Nature Communications, where he handles the manuscripts in the general direction of digital medicine and computational health. I'm really looking forward to an engaging conversation with Lorenzo for the next one hour or so. So welcome to the podcast, Lorenzo. 
Thank you, Anima, for, for having me, for inviting me. I'm happy to, to share my, my thoughts today. Wonderful. So I guess our tradition is that the first question we ask is about your becoming. So how was the years? How were you trained and how you became the editor of Nature Communications? Yeah, it's quite a long journey. I started this job after, I think, 10 years of, uh, of research. I was trained as an environmental engineer. Most of my research expertise has been in infectious disease modeling, especially for cholera, which just sounds pretty far from most of the stuff I handle, which is uh, medical imaging-based uh, machine learning studies. Of course, I also do anything that has clinical inputs and some model between the output. And I also still do some infectious disease modeling. The transition wasn't too traumatic. The, the learning curve, while being in the red store, is pretty steep. Like, especially for me, that I started in January 2020. And so I was like, right, uh, I jumped in the middle of the storm, basically. In the beginning, I was also doing all the infectious disease modeling, apart from digital medicine. So it was pretty tough, but I learned a lot uh, very fast. I've read the more papers in uh, one month than in 10 years, probably. <laughs> so I guess a sort of related question would be, what was the main difference that you faced when you made the transition from the traditional academic career to the editorial role? Well, I must say that this is a role that's not for everybody, maybe. You need to be interested in reading a lot learning about stuff you know nothing about. For me, anything that's below the visible is uh, quite new because, you know, for an engineering course, uh, I've never been exposed to, you know, DNA or proteins or stuff like that. And part of my remit is about drug discovery, for instance. But also, on the other hand, what's really nice, if you come from academia and if you're a certain type of person, is that you arrive at the end of the day and you have done something, uh, you know, saw the end of some process, like you have, I don't know, sent a manuscript for peer review, or you have interacted with an author to explain your decision. There's a lot more frequent feedback, let's say, with respect to, to research in which you really need to have a strong self-confidence, so to speak, to keep going, despite whatever the environment tells you, let's say, or doesn't tell you. So I guess it's more about reading from very diverse background and have a more like lots of breadth along with, of course, the depth. But you have to have a lot of breadth to understand what uh, genetics researcher is talking versus what a machine yeah. is talking. And also, as you are providing, you are meant to be, you know, super partners or, I mean, objective you can't uh, really you know i don't feel well today uh, i don't like this manuscript I, i'm going to, to reject it you need to be very disciplined in the providing uh, fair decisions and consistent decisions through time of course sometimes the bar you set may be shifting for some reasons but this happened mostly for the covid papers i must say because uh, of course, in the beginning, we were trying to send out stuff with little validation cohorts, for instance, 
or that maybe wasn't too different from any other, you know, CT scan based or X-ray based imaging study that was out there just to you know provide a, a, another cohort to the researchers or stronger evidence that diagnostic models uh, could work in the clinic. But in general, the other challenge is that you have to, to be consistent. So if the author asks you about the decision, you, you have strong reasons and you can put them down in, uh, in writing for your decision. I see. Yeah, I mean, the, the COVID-19 and how things work during crisis, how academia worked, we can write many, many pages full of texts about just the entire process, how it, it got sort of like shocked by this pandemic. But I guess let's imagine a non-pandemic world where you first get hold of a paper at, at your hand when it's an article is submitted. I guess you look at it before it goes to actually external reviewers for the reviewing. So what are the main things that you check as an editor? Yeah, sure. So, of course, all articles are already full uh, before being sent out to peer review. And because of my background, which is more like, a, like I'm an engineer and probably before even the, the clinical problem that the authors are trying to tackle, I look at the robustness of the study in terms of uh, sample sizes, the presence of external validation, how well, you know, annotation of the samples is performed, how well the methodology is reported, how data processing. And uh, in time, also, I developed a few other, let's say, flags or that I would like to see, especially in medical imaging studies, for instance, uh, comparison with humans and also some kind of interpretation of the model outputs, uh, so like predictive features or highlighting the areas in images that the model selects. And then probably on a second uh, thought, I look also at how niche the problem is from a clinical point of view. Now, sometimes for this task, I will ask some of my colleagues who are more versed or have expertise in the clinical studies. But I think what we want to see, first of all, is a model that is well-developed and that the authors have reported well in full and they at least have tried their best to make it reproducible and generalizable, let's say. Uh, as you know, for instance, with COVID models, there's been a lot of issues with uh, models not performing well in other cohorts, uh, stuff like that. Uh, so we try to be careful uh, on that. Yes, I mean, the last point that you made about COVID, yes, we had sort of at the start some, let's say, inkling feeling that there is something fishy going on. So many papers coming out saying, okay, we are doing this, we are doing that. And then there were couple of papers that were published that actually looked at sort of the meta view of the published articles during COVID-19 and talked about either the Frankenstein data sets that makes no sense to use as a validation or even the maturity of the paper itself. You are on point. That was, again, the problem situation. But 
Beyond that, I guess you talked about the robustness of the writing, let's say, and of course, the method validation, the model validation, all the important. I guess one thing that often people think about is that when they're submitting somewhere more of their technical conferences, let's say, for example, in our case, Mikhai, versus when it has to be somewhere like nature, the illustration quality plays an important role. So we have to illustrate and come up with figures that look much more beautiful, professional, presentable. Is this really a true thing or people just feel because they just see those things? Well, in principle, I would say, obviously, it's not a factor. More than how the figures look, I think it's important to... I mean, data visualization is also an art and a discipline in itself. So for sure, groups that can synthesize their information they want to convey in a very poignant way, let's say, have an advantage, I think. It's not really an aesthetic issue. In my case, I must say that, I mean, the the great majority, especially medical imaging studies of figures uh, I get is like, uh, I don't know, architecture pipelines and ROC curves. So that doesn't leave much to aesthetic or, you know, uh, the subjective judgment of the editor. So in general, I wouldn't say that there's, uh, for me at least, uh, a strong difference between uh, something you would submit to a conference and to our journal, let's say. I see. So I guess maybe one way to think about the problem is that if you get hold of two papers, which are, let's say, almost similar in terms of the technical novelty, in terms of the thoroughness of the validation, all these things, then the paper which is better illustrated, that paper will probably have a slight bit of an edge over the one which is not. Is that fair to say? I would say in general that a presentation of results, whether with uh, figures or text, is an issue sometimes. But this is more like in the, you know, when we send out papers to review, we want reviewers to be interested and not to waste their time. And so if, if the paper is not well presented, which means that, you know, the fundamental information that allows the readers to, to understand what the, the authors have done and what findings they could extract from the analysis, if presentation is not well developed, we might be less interested in sending stuff to peer review. I've had cases of having to reject papers before peer review because the concept was uh, was interesting, but there was no clear evidence that the methodology the authors had used made any sense, uh, let's say. So in general, for sure, presentation is something that we look at. But in terms of whether the uh, the analysis is is sound for what we can see, of course, and whether findings make sense or can be reasonably expected from the, the methodology, let's say. I see. Okay, no, that, that makes total sense. So I guess one thing that was clear from the, like early on when we were talking about the topics is that you have a lot of interest in medical AI, especially machine learning models that's developed on medical images and doing diagnosis, prognosis 
and whatnot. So if we look at really from the, the history of data communications, you have published quite a few articles on medical AI, maybe since the medical AI, maybe since your uh, uh, joining in 2020. So what sort of medical AI articles are you in general interested to publish? Yeah. Yeah, so of course, the remits of the editors of Nature Communications has been narrowing down in time as we get more and more submissions. Probably there's been a surge of content in this area since I joined. I was like a, a branching of a previous editor, let's say, that had an even greater remit than I have. And I think that there are two main types of article that we are interested in. I think, fortunately, as a, like a, how can I say, an intermediate journal, or I mean, we're not nature medicine. We can focus also on uh, uh, purely methodological content. And uh, this is an area where we, I think we have published some important content. Uh, uh, we were talking about the causality uh, perspective in medical imaging. We are very interested in that field, you know, that we have published a, what we call a Q&A this year on causality in digital medicine. We have been looking also at continual learning schemes when the input is uh, medical imaging, but also physiological signals. We are looking at other methodological papers involving natural language processing, for instance, to discover confounders, let's say, from EHRs and the other, let's say, type of article instead. And also for, for this first type, type of article, we would expect, of course, some sort of conceptual uh, advance or a clear motivation of something that wasn't present before and now the authors provide. And of course, the second type of article we are interested in is clinical applications, let's say, for which we don't expect normally technical advance. It's perfectly fine if you you're going to use even an off-the-shelf uh, convolutional neural network as long as a clinical task is well-defined, as long as the authors have the data to support their, their claims in terms of what the model can do and whether the clinical application case is well-determined, as in uh, this model will generate uh, this many false positives or false negatives, and that's... Uh, consistent with standard of practice, whether the model is supposed to assist or replace clinicians and the authors maybe have done a, a clinical study to, to show that. So these are the main two types uh, of articles we are interested in, especially in, the, in medical AI, let's say. Yeah, that, that's really a good point that you are saying that you can also focus a bit of the conceptual methodological articles along with, the, of course, the obvious more value we just plug and play more or less develop neural networks and see how they are performing for a clinically important, clinically relevant task. So I guess you already talked about COVID-19 and what happened around that time. And then basically there are, of course, papers talking about the underwhelming maturity, let's say, of the COVID-19 imaging AI papers, at least the first group of papers that came in. But now if we really look at the COVID-19 and many of its variants, it seems like it's probably going to stay longer than what any of us want 
to be at the start of the pandemic. So do you expect to see more matured uh, medical AI papers that tackles the pandemic in some interesting ways, or you will you expect the same old, same old? Well, to be honest, I don't even remember the last time I sent a, <laughs> a COVID paper out to review in medical imaging. I mean, like anything that's any diagnostic model based on CT scans or CXRs. And I, I don't even recall a recent submission on that. We stopped receiving stuff in this area around one year ago, more or less. From what we've seen, there hasn't been much activity in this area. If you ask me what would I expect uh, from a paper in this area now, well, for instance, it would be nice to to see a framework to to tackle uh, a new emerging disease, for instance, what kind of model, what kind of framework in terms of, uh, you know, maybe uh, a model that only detects the abnormalities rather than a specific disease, because maybe in the beginning you have a, you don't have a lot of labeled data, you have a lot of noise because of all the other presentations that, that come in at the same time. But on the other hand, uh, I would expect maybe some prospective evaluation, some actual clinical deployment of a model in a clinic and uh, its assessment. But so far, I honestly, I we didn't receive anything of that kind. I see. So, so far, what you have received is more or less the imaging classification out or segmentation out plus something around that direction. So that's sort of, I guess, by now boring enough and we already know that it has not led to much value in terms of the pandemic. So you are really looking for what could bring a lot of benefit, a lot of value to the clinic for this pandemic or for some other pandemics. That totally makes sense, I would say, in so many levels. So I guess if we are talking about the concerns of medical AI and how much it under-delivered during the pandemic, in terms of, of course, there are concerns from the clinical side as well, but from the technology development itself, people are questioning the robustness of such methods, the privacy concerns, the interpretation concerns. So from your vantage point of the editor of Nature Communications, where do you expect to see more activities in terms of research in this direction and maybe submission to your journal? Well. We are pursuing a lot studies that can at least begin to tackle the various biases that have emerged in this field. For now, what we see is on one side, the acknowledgement that these biases exist. For instance, last year, actually, we published work that pointed out that you can train a model from the CGA slides to predict the, the source site of the slides so the model can learn uh, for instance the demographic prevalence say of uh, ethnicity profiles from these sites but so far we haven't received work that can really tackle these biases of course much of the issue is an issue with data collection because we don't have a, a representative sample but i think also what uh, nature communications can uh, can do rather than from this side, is from the more the methodological perspective to make, let's say, 
machine learning models more accountable in terms of uh, discriminating biological from non-biological factors. So we are also interested in the discussion of what machine learning can do to, to solve existing biases and health inequalities. Sometimes you read that there's a lot of funding being funneled into artificial intelligence or machine learning centers to, to tackle biases in healthcare or inequalities in general. But we also need to be careful about what you know, algorithms can really do uh, and uh, what kind of inequalities they are really seeing. And it's important, I think, this is also one of the reasons we are very interested in the causality, let's say, field uh, in digital medicine, especially as a way to, to disentangle formally the non-biological factors that are involved in healthcare inequalities, meaning problems in access to care, social, economic discrimination from biological factors that may still exist. Uh, but sometimes from what we see, they're still, you know, entangled in the studies. And that creates a problem, of course, because you are not, you know, telling the policymaker, you know, you, you're not putting them against the wall saying this is the target and this is the way you, you need to intervene to solve this problem, you know. And uh, I, I, I guess one of the like big question that came from what you said so far is just that bias, a systematic analysis of the mitigations of bias, and maybe even if we have some direction where we can say, okay, uh, we are bringing causal analysis to really understand the bias that is there in the data itself and then try these are the different methodological steps that we are taking to somehow negating the bias that would be something that's very interesting from nature communications perspective and then you were basically continuing and then i interrupted you so please continue lorenzo yeah no apart from the fairness issue in general, I feel that we are, uh, you know, I haven't checked uh, clinicaltrials.gov, <laughs> but uh, I feel that we are in a, a time when uh, there will be a lot more or probably an exponential growth of uh, real clinical studies to get approval for machine learning models for clinical practice. And I think that maybe we can talk about this a bit more. I think that nature communities can be a venue of choice for methodological work can, that can support these studies in terms of the methodology that you need to prove to support the claims that are relevant to a clinical trial, apart from simply, you know, comparing performance as a way to prevent also biased results, let's say. I see. So I guess, yes, I totally agree with you that there will be a lot of clinical trials about software that uses AI as its component will come in the coming years. So just to understand the fact that in such cases, I guess clinical trial depends a lot on the overall tool, the experience of the tool. It's not just the learning model that is inside there. So when people are writing papers to you about clinical trial of the AI method, are you necessarily going to let's say, differentiate between the method itself, the machine learning part itself, and the software package around it, or 
to you, it would be a total experience and you will try to understand the clinical trial of that. Yeah, let, let me start with saying that we haven't received many clinical trials and the ones I have received have much more preliminary problems, let's say. It's actually funny in a way because of basically two clinical trials I have received. One was a trial in practice, but wasn't registered as such. And the other had been registered as clinical trial, but as far as I could see, I, I don't think it would even uh, classify as an observational clinical trial and surely did not uh, uh, present an intervention. And so I think uh, there might be also problems with how raw the community is with respect to clinical trial deployment. Of course, if you tell me in a paper that uh, at a certain point in time in your hospital, you would use an algorithm to diagnose people instead of a standard test, that's trial uh, because care would be determined by the output of the model rather than the standard of care. And so to find that a study like that was not registered uh, is pretty concerning. That being said, I think that for the assessment of a clinical trial paper, we would uh, have uh, quite different standards, let's say, uh, for editorial evaluation. Because the fact that the authors are presenting a formalized analysis of the algorithm performance sets the study apart from, you know, we have a sent to review stuff that was already presented in a non-formalized way, you know, the same model that performs the same task, but we sent to review the study that would be submitted to the regulatory agency for approval, even though the model didn't do anything new that wasn't uh, published, let's say. I see, I see what you are saying. So I can imagine very well that these are still the early days of AI clinical trials, and then you will receive papers which belong to that, let's say, immature category of let's try to be the first instead of doing the rigor. But I guess over the time, there will be more matured, well-done clinical trials, and then we will see what sort of benefit AI brings. Totally, I totally understand what you are saying. I guess uh, we are towards the end of the podcast, or at least this uh, particular session. So if I think about my early days, as a naive youngster, I used to think that, let's say, politics and science are very disconnected domains. After working on medical imaging and machine learning for some time, I know that there are potential impact that we can have from technology to the politics and to society because medicine is so much at the core, at the center. And then, of course, COVID-19 pandemic basically made sure that we know how intertwined these medical sciences, technologies, uh, society, and politics really are. So in such an environment, what would be really uh, nature's role and nature communication's role influencing the medicine world to embrace, let's say, more of AI technology in the coming years or decades? Yeah, one thing I have to say, I had some conversations recently about this, 
is that maybe as engineers, sometimes we don't really see the full picture of what deploying algorithms in standard healthcare would mean in terms of assigning some part of the public interest activity to uh, computational platforms, the effect of bypassing expert advice. Of course, all the medical imaging and also digital medicine tools in general have a transformative potential to provide uh, expert healthcare in uh, remote areas and stuff like that. But I think there are also other concerns of, you know, also uh, uploading data uh, in the cloud, uh, uh, etc. From our point of view of what our journals can do, we're certainly looking at a gap, let's say, from a, you know, high level research on, uh, on these tools and the daily, you know, healthcare routine and providing more nuanced uh, information about how the deployment of the tools can happen. For instance, I was looking recently uh, at content on uh, artificial intelligence for global health. So like how to tackle global health inequalities with artificial intelligence. In principle, you know, there's a lot of opinion pieces telling how to, you know, to implement software solutions to hardware problems for healthcare assistance in some countries. My impression was that there's a lot of day-to-day -day issues that cause a, a hindrance to, to these kind of helicopter solutions. So I think we want to kind of assist the transition from, from research to the clinic in the best, best possible way without causing like uh, backlashes from, uh, you know, too rushed uh, implementations or from disparities in how the data was collected and uh, how the, the actual population is. I guess uh, data set shift is not that well tackled in this moment, in these studies. And yeah, I hope this was, was, was a question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess what I was thinking of is that, like, as you said, that whenever we try to put these helicopter solutions, there is always a sort of a backlash, right? It's simply a lot of the people who are implementing the solutions, they don't even understand the problem. But also the fact that often there is sort of a status quo, it doesn't matter whether it's a, let's say, this economically rich countries, developed world or the developing world, there is always a backlash whenever you are trying to change certain systems. But nature, the name itself carries a certain weight. And whenever papers are being published in nature that shows that certain things are possible, people look at it in its definitely in a different way. The brand name has certain uh, let's say, great association with it. So I was just wondering, do you have a sort of understanding of how you might actually impact the uptake by publishing these sort of papers that you are currently publishing? Well, I guess we are very aware of the impact of what we publish. 
And as I said, I think that the best service we can do is look for robust models and representative tools that can really change uh, the way healthcare is provided. And that's, that's it, I think. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it's really on point what you guys are doing. It's absolutely wonderful. You are publishing papers from in silico medicine to this sort of causality, continual learning, federated learning. So it's a, I guess it's a brave new world and we are learning more about the things that needs to happen from the technology side, but also in the bigger context, the bigger picture where we can bring benefit and of course, nature being there really helps in, in that endeavor. So on that note, thank you so much for uh, your time, Lorenzo. It was really wonderful talking to you and hearing from a very different perspective about this changing world than what we are normally used to in this podcast. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Anibar, for having me. Thanks for your time as well. All righty then. Bye-bye and have a wonderful new year, 2022. <laughs> yeah, you too.